end-of-life issues are perhaps the most important that we have to deal with in the Jewish community. And yet, in so many areas, in so many families, in so many communities, they're not dealt with. There are some people who are trying to change that. Joining us today from the Shomer Collective, Rabbi Melanie Lavav, and from Miyama, a new startup for Scott Araghetti. Don't push pause. You're listening to Jewish Insiders Podcast. And welcome back. I'm Jared Bernstein. Rich Goldberg here. You know, today, Rich, uh, it's a bit of a departure for us. We normally are involved in the body politic, but, you know, it's, I think, about time for us to take a little bit of a step back and do some more uh, reflective thinking about some of the weightier issues. And I'm really excited to hear from the rabbi and from Scott about what the Jewish community is doing and what it could be doing better as we look at the issues of death and dying. Yes, uh, depressing issues for some, uh, but as my grandmother of blessed memory taught me when I was first, as a very young child, confronted with the issue of death, it was explained to me by my older brothers what the song uh, Sunrise, Sunset was all about, and uh, in their uh, teenage uh, way, uh, bluntly told me that people die and that my grandparents would die at some point. And I started crying uncontrollably as a little boy. Uh, they got my grandmother on the phone and explained to her the situation. And I'll never forget her telling me death is a part of life. We all will die, but it's just a part of living. And uh, this is uh, true in the Jewish community. And we think about our faith and our rituals that surround death uh, as as many have put it, uh, Jews do death perhaps better than anyone else. Uh, and and that's something that, while is true uh, in the faith and the ritual, still there are so many practical issues, Jared, that families don't talk about until it's too late. And those left behind carry tremendous burden. Yeah, and you know that's that's a perfect segue to our guests, uh, Matt, Rabbi Melanie Lavav at the Shomer Collective, is doing great work, and we're excited to have her with us. She's uh, previously worked with PJ Library in New York, and is an ordained rabbi from JTS. Scott Araghetti of Mi Alma, who is also a former Jewish liaison for Republican, I, I might add, uh, and a good friend. Uh, really excited to have them both on. So, Rabbi Scott. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having us. So interesting topic today. Um, and I see, our listeners can't see the video, but we are smiling and bright faces. But we're actually here to talk about a pretty somber topic, which is the topic of death and grief and and the Jewish tradition. Uh, both Rabbi and, and Scott, you guys approach this from sort of different angles, one in the um, programmatic way, one in the more entrepreneurial way, but both are making really interesting contributions to the the study and the the dealing with death in the Jewish tradition. And so, you know, Rich and I as two sort of early middle-aged guys who are starting to face these issues with our parents and early middle age. That's 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 new. That's I've well I mean you might not be early age. I'm forty I gotta look, I, I gotta look I'm 40, that one up. you know early but, but, middle age. I like but that. But seriously uh, a good friend of mine is dealing I'm with I'm late early age. That's enough out of you. A good, a good friend of mine is dealing with the issues of a parent with dementia. She's in a memory care unit. He just had to move her in the memory care unit. And I'm going with this. I'm going through this with him. And it, it's it's gut-wrenching, right? He's an only child. Um, 
and this is a journey towards towards death and towards being with Hashem and 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 so interested to hear how both you all are are dealing with this. Uh, maybe Rabbi, if we could start with you, tell us a little bit about the Shomer Collective and, and how you got to this work because at one point in time you ran PJ Library, so it's sort of like two different ends of the spectrum. And, I, and I'm young enough, Jared, to be using. PJ <laughs> I'm, I, by the way, I use PJ Library <laughs> also. Let's not talk about early um, middle age, early middle age. PJ okay. Library user right now. Right. Thanks. Let me just clarify with respect to the Grinspoon Foundation. Uh, I ran PJ Library in New York, oh, see? not the whole. Okay. Well, the only place that matters, Rabbi. The only place that matters. <laughs> Thank you. I'm in agreement with you on that. So. Uh, Shomer Collective is a startup nonprofit. We're being incubated by the good folks at the Natan Fund. Uh, and we emerged after a group of friends started sharing their experiences about the death of a loved one um, and recognized that there were things about those experiences that we wish could have been different. I had this in my own life with the death of my mother-in-law and really learned only at bedside about things like hospice and chaplaincy support um, and in my work in the Jewish community over the last two dozen plus years, I saw too many families wind up in crisis because of our inability to talk about death and dying. We're scared uh, that it might hasten the arrival of the angel of death. That's one of our superstitions. Um, and we don't know where to go, who to call, what to do. Um, and uh, we realized uh, that there could be a lot to do further upstream to help people avoid ending up in this crisis. So our work at Shomer Collective is to help improve end-of-life care and conversations inspired by Jewish wisdom. And we do that by helping people to talk more openly, more frequently, with less fear about death and dying, and to do that grounded in so much Jewish wisdom that we've kind of pushed out of our view over the last hundred years or so. And and Scott, you're you're doing this in, in sort of uh, I don't want to say entrepreneurial, but you're you're a startup founder, right? No, you're a is. serial startup yeah. founder, and uh, absolutely. So tell us about what you're working on. Yeah, so Mi Alma, which is uh, Spanish for my soul, it's really more Ladina, but we'll call it Spanish, uh, is a startup that my wife and I have co-founded, and um, the goal of Mi Alma is to be the place to support grievers. So what we do, you know, our belief is that you know there there is. There is room and there is a need for a, a tool, a modern piece of technology that empowers supporters with the knowledge and resources that they need to direct their compassion in meaningful ways. You, know, you think of the, the composition of a standard funeral. You've got a clergy um, that is officiating. You've got members of the family up close. But the largest group by far is are the supporters. So we really exist to bridge the disconnect between the supporters and the grievers. So similar to what the rabbi was saying a few minutes ago, uh, it, it can be, you know, grief can be a very isolating thing, uh, which is uh, all the more in some ways kind of tragic, given that there are so many supporters around that want to help, that want to take action, whether that action is making a donation either to the family to help reimburse with medical expenses or funeral expenses or for kids' education or for sugar meals, whatever it is, um, or to sponsor a meal itself for the family or help volunteering with time, time and energy. Um, but often there's 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 this kind of awkwardness, there's this fog of kind of confusion that can sit in. Uh, so we want to kind of normalize that. So, you know, similar to how uh, our society is very comfortable using the idea of a registry for happy life cycle events. Someone has a new baby, there's a new world, there's a wedding, you know where to go, you know how to help. But when someone loses someone close to them, it's kind of chaos. So we want to help fill that void by making it easier for the supporters to take action, show up to action for their for their loved one, for their friends that, that are either about to or have lost a loved one. Um, and that's what Mi Alma is all about. 
Rabbi, so much you said, and Scott as well, uh, we want to dive into a little further. Uh, Start, Rabbi, if you could talk to us about what you sort of found missing in more detail in the Jewish community as far as how we are dealing with end-of-life issues as a community and, and what it is that you set out to really fill in that space. Um, we saw too many people in a place where they didn't know what to expect, who to call, where to find help, especially Jewishly inflected help. You know, the majority of American Jews are not affiliated with synagogues any longer. And even in the cases, for those of us who are affiliated, we may not have the kind of relationship with a clergy person, or it may not occur to us to give them a call when we're in this place where mom's gotten a diagnosis and we don't know what to do, we don't know what to expect, or the doctor says mom has days left and we don't know what to ask and what to think about. And so our work recognizes that if we have these conversations while we're well about the reality that we are all mortal, we will be in a better position when we get that call from mom saying, I have the diagnosis and the doctor says I have this much time left, right? When we do the work of advanced care planning, of designating a healthcare proxy, of expressing our wishes in the form of a living will, of normalizing the conversations about death and dying at every age and stage of life, including children, where children are aware of the reality, right, of life and death, and we don't push them out of the room when we're talking about things, but they grow up in a society, in a community where this is normalized. It's, you know, in, in, an, in an engaged community, it's bringing the kids to make a shiva call. It's not leaving them home with a babysitter, but helping them to see this is what we do. We go to provide comfort for the mourner. We maybe bring some food with us. Maybe we're going to make a donation in memory of the person who died, right? It's involving people in the process from the earliest stages so that when we who are in middle age get to this place where our parents are on the decline, we've already had the conversations with them when they were well of mom, dad, what do you want? And then we're also doing the work for ourselves of what do we want when our time comes, right? The burden that's left on people at the time of death can be reduced if we've done the planning. There's no reason not to identify where we want to be buried, which funeral home we're going to use. Some people maybe even engage in funeral pre-planning to take those decisions off of the shoulders of the people who will be left behind and their acute moment of grief. You know, the word shomer from our name Uh, means guard in modern Hebrew or watcher. And in traditional Jewish practice, the shomer or the people who sit shmirah are the people who take turns sitting with the body from the time of death through burial. They're usually volunteers, members of the community who participate in the rituals around preparing the body for burial, part of the Hever Kadisha, the Sacred Burial Society. And our work is meant to evoke this image of sacred accompaniment, just as the Shomer is sitting with the body from death through burial, they're the first person to accompany the soul as it begins its journey of separation from the body. If we believe that the soul is contained within the body while we're alive, and there's a process of separation from the moment of death onward, 
then to be a shomer is to have that obligation and opportunity to provide sacred accompaniment. So how much more so um, can we provide sacred accompaniment to those of us who are ready to confront our mortality, to do it in a way that recognizes Jewish wisdom has a lot to offer us on this, and to prepare us so that when we get the call, when it is our time, when it's mom's time, we're in a much better place and perhaps avoid some of these crises that happen when we don't do the, the conversations earlier. Rabbi, I want to come back to something you said, but before I do, Scott, what gave you this idea? Like why, you know, you're you're a came out of politics, right? You were a distinguished former Jewish liaison uh, in the White House, uh, part part of the J Lotus Club. Um, and you, you've, you've been in the startup space, but what, what gave you the inspiration to kind of turn your eye towards death and dying and grief? Yeah, it was an area that uh, my wife and I have observed from personal experience for a long time. I mean, as you mentioned, I spent a couple of years in politics when I got out of college in, in DC in the Bush administration, Bush 43. And I spent uh, from 09 really until early pandemic in the startup world, uh, working at different high growth startups across different industries uh, out of Atlanta. And in that time period, just like everyone else, I've had people I've known that have passed away and gone through the loss of someone close to them. My wife and I have both lost grandparents and we've had friends. We've, we've done the, the standard, the standard, we've gone to funerals and gone to shivas and we've observed uh, kind of this, this, this void where uh, it kind of felt like, you know, after, after a shiva, after a couple of days, um, afterwards a shiva, um, everyone kind of moves on and the family never really does. And we've noticed that, you know, friend that maybe passed away far too young that had young kids where people were going on Facebook and asking questions of where can I go? What can I donate? What, what do they need? Or putting pictures on different social media platforms that really weren't designed for this. So this idea, we kind of noticed this, this chaos. Um, and so both my wife, Jordan and I working in, in tech startups and kind of observing how to, how to build and scale companies, we saw, we saw an area where uh, there really could be this platform. And honestly, the pandemic was a big driver too. Uh, to what the rabbi talked about a few minutes ago, just you know, at the end of the day, you almost a mental health play. We are trying to, uh, to, to what she said as well, to to kind of change the conversation and reduce the stigma around these things because it's part of life. It's universally applicable. Everyone will be a griever, and everyone, much more than that, will be a supporter. So uh, about two years ago, a little over two years ago, we went on what we kind of call like a listening tour of talking to everyone that we knew that had gone through grief in different areas, the loss of a parent, a sibling, a spouse, a child in some cases, um, and, you know, experts in this field, uh, licensed professionals, spiritual leaders, rabbis, pastors, et cetera. And we kind of discovered that there really was a major need for this and that there was room for us to kind of bring this platform to market in a way that connects people, in a way that that uh, kind of um, encourages healing and, and really tries to make sure that those grievers uh, that they know, you know, to to kind of have the have the supporters meet their needs as best as possible. So now we're we're focused on things. We're trying to understand. Okay, how can we do a better job at that? How can we look at not just uh, the emotional needs, but the emotional needs and the functional needs, and short term and long term. What does that look like on the anniversary of important dates? So, you know, some people, whether it's on the anniversary of when a loved one passed or when they're born on a, on a major holiday, a religious holiday, not everyone is comfortable going on Facebook and saying today would have been, but they know what day it is. So how can we have, you know, how can we build tools and products and technology that make it easier for those supporters that, that um, their heart's in the right place? And you may not know that, for example, maybe next Friday is five years since when a buddy lost his father. But your buddy knows what day it is. So if Mialma can help you in that instance, 
to show empathy and show support for, for your friend, whatever that looks like, whether that's a text or a donation or leaving them a picture or a story or whatever it is, um, that's kind of, that's kind of that, like, that is our charge. So yeah, at the high level, it's, it's personal experience. And I think as it's to the Jewish community and everyone here is familiar with the concept of Shiva, it's a beautiful concept. I think our community, like it's kind of weird to say, but like I think largely we do death pretty well. Um, other faiths and communities maybe aren't as, uh, the rituals aren't quite the same in that. So part of what Miyom was trying to do is to really take these concepts, uh, really Jewish values and concepts of Sadaka and Jukun Olam and the door of the door, and kind of like bake them into this platform that is as inclusive as it's certainly not just for the Jewish community, it's for everybody. It's it's for everyone. Um, but there's like Jewish like DNA, if you will, in the in the ethos, in the soul of Mioma. Rabbi, I want to come back to something you said in your intro about uh, the Jewish community forgetting a lot about death and dying in the last hundred years. Yes. I, I that fascinated me when you said it, and and then I will shut up and let Rich ask some questions because he's nominally smarter than me. But but wh- what have we forgotten? Uh, like wh- sure. what was de- what did death used to be like in the Jewish community, and, and what is it like now? Jared, I'm going to make some assumptions about your family's background, but I'll use my own family's background. I might imagine that my great-great-grandparents who were living in the shtetls of Eastern Check. Europe, right? <laughs> Thank you. Um, and Scott can fill us in on the Sephardic experience. But we still might imagine that a, a few generations back, our families were experiencing death very differently than how we experience it today. First of all, in the last hundred years, we have um, the healthcare system here in America, right? People are dying in hospitals and long-term care facilities. They're not dying, as I would imagine happened a few generations ago, in the community, in the home even, right? I have to imagine my great-great-grandparents and yours too, Jared Bernstein, right? were in the place that they lived when they died. There was nowhere else to be. And so we might imagine that everyone else in the family of all generations was around because it was the only place to be. Where else were you going to go, right? Nobody was in Boca. Nobody was in Boca. That's right. (laughs) Exactly where I was going with this, right? Grandma's dying in Florida. We live in New York or LA, and we've paid caregivers to take care of her, and they'll give us a call when the time comes, or if we're lucky, we'll make it down on the plane before the moment happens, but we have busy lives. And so what if we lost in the way that we live our lives that we can reclaim. Well, we can reclaim the reality that everyone is mortal, right? And we can stop avoiding it or ignoring it by bringing those conversations into our day-to-day life, by acknowledging that grandma's not going to live forever. And you know what? We're not going to live forever either. And so as long as we're taking care of the planning for grandma and Boca, we might as well deal with it for mom and dad who are living in Jersey. And we should deal with it for ourselves while we're living in New York City or DC, wherever we are. It's never too early. It's often too late. Uh, It's why when I turned 40, I bought plots in my family's uh, plot uh, here in New York, it felt like something important. And if in the future my kids live in another place and they decide it's important for them to be able to visit my grave and they want to bury me elsewhere, okay, they have that option. But at least I've removed that question of where are we going to be buried by having taken care of it in advance. And my parents had already bought their plots in that place too. So, you know, I think we've pushed out of our view this reality And we've pushed the Jewish wisdom out along with it in the ways that we live our lives. Um, You know, we know that Jews do death well, as Scott said. And yet, if you're not part of a robust, engaged community, 
um, we find that Shiva is a hard thing to access the benefit of, right? How do you engage with something like Shiva if A, you don't want somebody in your, in your home, you don't think you have people to come make a visit, people don't know how to make a visit because they haven't gone to other places, right? And so we don't know how to do what was once assumed to be the norm. And I think there's still places in many Jewish communities where it is the norm, but if the majority of Jews aren't engaging in the way that creates those norms, then that's part of the problem of what we've lost and need to bring back in. And Rabbi, you talked about the changing dynamic of the American Jewish community with so many who are unaffiliated. And of course, the just broad range of practice that we have in the United States, where it's not a broad range of observance level, like maybe we had in communities long ago in Europe, elsewhere, but it's truly different practices. And you may have a family that's sitting Shiva for one day or two days. You know, that's what they've been advised. That's what they want to do. And and then there's a very observant family, a really orthodox family that's going to be doing things, you know, very traditionally. Uh, I, I remember a story as I grew up, my, my father told me uh, about his time in Scotland growing up when, when one of his grandparents died that he was put in charge as the eldest, eldest grandson of standing at the doorway to block the medical staff from coming to take his grandmother away uh, for the autopsy. There was no sort of protocols in place in a Scottish hospital, you know, 60, 70 years ago. Uh, and, and so we sort of fast forward to today. There are protocols in, in many hospitals. They, they sort of know that when you check in, oh, this person's Jewish, it's not. Who is your audience? I guess I'm wondering, right? Is is it an Orthodox family, a conservative family, a reformed family, unaffiliated family, all of the above? And how do you approach all of that diversity in the Jewish community and how you're trying to be this sort of uh, aircraft carrier for all of them? Sure. All said of the, the Navy guy. Sure. Said the Navy guy. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. Sorry. All right. Sorry, Rabbi. Keep going. All of, the, all of the above for sure, just because someone is orthodox or more engaged in their Jewish community doesn't mean they're doing a better job of talking about death and dying, doesn't mean that when the time comes they have any better clue than someone who's unaffiliated about who to call, what to do, how to get access to the family plot, where it's even located, how many graves are left, right? And even within that orthodox family, let's look you know, at the diversity of the Jewish community um, and interfaith concerns come into play right? In some cemeteries, uh, there are different sections for interfaith families to be buried together. But in some older cemeteries or affiliated with synagogues, there are still rules that you can only be buried if you're Jewish according to Jewish law in this cemetery. And so that excludes people. What we're doing is really looking big tent at how can we help more people to do the work of confronting mortality inspired by, guided by Jewish wisdom, so that no matter your affiliation or your lack of affiliation and your family's background, when the time comes, you're in a much better place. You're more prepared to be able to take advantage of the things that are available to you. And you've made some decisions so that you don't have to worry about making those decisions at the height of your grief. Our work happens... Um, direct to consumer, a lot online. We emerged during the pandemic, though the development of our work um, started way before the pandemic. And uh, we're also working through a couple dozen partner organizations to try to reach people who are beyond um, the reaches of traditional uh, Jewish organizations. 
Um, I, I still don't think it's safe to make any assumptions that even if you belong to one, two or three synagogues, um, that you've necessarily done the work that needs to be done. You might have access to some rabbis to help you through that crisis in your moment of need. But it doesn't mean that just because you're going to synagogue on a regular basis, you've done the work to alleviate the burden that's going to be left on your family. Uh, one more question for you as well. Then I, I do have another question for you, Scott. Uh, as far as the actual providers in the space, the um, the funeral homes, uh, you know, the, the those that may be in the end of care world for Jews in a for profit way in, in other spaces, it's a it's a weird space, right? Because the non Jewish world has a plethora of choices, and whether it's a small community with the mom and pop you know, uh, funeral home or, or the, the, the big roll-ups around the country, whatever it is. Whereas like you live in Chicago, right? There's like two options for a funeral and there's, you know, the historic cemeteries where maybe you have some family plots. So, you know, you keep getting buried there or like the one newer cemetery of the last, you know, 50 years where everybody just has to go. It's just like such like a, a more limited space. And, and there's problems that obviously arise because of that. What is your interaction, your interface with the actual providers, with the service providers, and how could that maybe be improved as well? Sure. We noticed in our mapping of what existed when we were trying to identify where were the the gaps and what were the opportunities um, that a lot of these fields exist in silos. It makes sense, right? The funeral directors know the funeral directors. They go to the conventions with the funeral directors. The nursing home directors go to the conferences with the nursing home directors. Um, And we started um, bringing people together cross-discipline. We held an online convening last year for the first time. And we put together an invite list, trying to bring people from lots of different fields together. And we're blown away by the reception. We had more than 250 people register. We were expecting uh, under 100. And the conversations that have emerged have helped to develop um, new ways of thinking about and working with families directly. For example, a group of Jewish death doulas emerged from our convening. Folks who have gone outside of the Jewish community, gotten training certification as an end-of-life doula, someone a family can hire to support them through the process outside of what they get in their healthcare benefits. And there are a growing number of doulas who are Jewish and want to integrate Jewish ritual and practice into their work of supporting families. So I think a lot of the work that we do, about half of our work is direct to families and individuals, and about half is toward uh, organizations and professionals. A lot of the work we do with organizations and professionals is designed to break down some of those silos, to bring people into conversation so that you know in your community what the options are. And I want to offer one um, important piece. You know, we make assumptions about Jews using the local funeral home and being buried without in the local cemetery without recognizing the costs of these things, the trends that have driven up the cost that lots of formerly family-owned funeral homes are now owned by one large corporation that owns a majority of funeral homes in this country. And uh, people wind up choosing things that are lower in price because they don't realize until the moment they have to make that decision that a funeral could cost $10,000, $20,000. And that doesn't even include the price of buying the plot. And a, a, a cremation by fire is much cheaper 
Um, we see in the news things like natural organic reduction, which is body composting. For $7,500, you can go use a company in Seattle, put your body in a climate-controlled pod, and in 30 days, it will decompose. Your family's given the natural organic matter to do with as they wish, much cheaper than the traditional options. So I think part of our challenge, which leads to the opportunity, is to help educate people right? From those different disciplines, here's what to expect if you're going to need care, right? Here are the options that are available in your community, different levels of care. Here's what to expect when you're dying in terms of what you can access services in your community. And then once you've died, if you've taken care of making those decisions in advance, you know how much it's going to cost. Maybe you've even prepaid or put the money aside. And it's not a shock to the family who in some cases have to spend $50,000 overnight in order to get the funeral and the burial in a large metropolitan city like LA. And if I could add real quick, they're not just having to spend that kind of money. They're doing so while they're in an incredibly emotional and delicate state where it's, they've just gone through a incredibly traumatic act. Something horrible has happened. And now they're hit with this, this bill of sorts. So yeah, I completely agree. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, I, yeah, Scott, I, I, to that point, I remember from my father-in-law's funeral going in to make the arrangements and being presented with options of things. And, uh, we were with, with my wife's aunt and she was like, what that like, like, but, and like, yeah, it's one of the worst it, days of your life. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I was just, I was, you know, I was just trying to get us through the day. Right. Cause that's all you're doing then is to get through the day and, and be there for your loved ones. And, you know, uh, to be able to educate folks on that is, is, is truly like a kid of Shashem. Um, I know Rich, you had another question for Scott. Yeah, Scott, Scott so I, I want to kind of understand the platform a little better of like functionality, what, what it's offering, what you can do there. I was, I was struck that you sort of had the, the moment of crisis, um, options and then the forward-looking things as well for the future, like memorials, yard sites, things like that. Um, I, I recently uh, we, we have a, a very good friend lost a parent, uh, and you know, unfortunately, as Jared's saying, we're getting to the age where, where, we're, where we're experiencing that more of, of friends, uh, family, you know, losing parents. Uh, and uh, I learned that at least uh, maybe this is in multiple communities, at least in, in the Orthodox community, there are Shiva consultants now. When my grandparents died, I just, I just don't remember There's, that. Yeah, yeah. I don't remember that being yeah. a thing. I don't remember that being a There's, thing when I was a kid and when my grandparents passed away. But yeah, you can get it like a, like a wedding consultant. You can get a Shiva like a, consultant. Like a, like a they, Shiva planner? Like a, well, like a there's, shiva there's, player, yeah. There's, 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 a, there's a phrase that we've actually uh, – we've heard a few people that have been referred to um, that we've been in touch with that are called like the Shiva Queen of so the Shiva Queen of Baltimore. The shiva, and these people that yeah, – some of them are, are uh, charged as a consultant. Some of them are just do it because that's just the goodness of their heart. But yeah, people that kind of step in and you know, they have their spreadsheets. They have their, 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 their friends and allies that kind of like do some of the legwork. But yeah, they organize and they mobilize and they aggregate action. And it's all under this guise of trying to trying to provide relief for the family. And that's really, I think, the common thread in a lot of what, what, what the rabbi and her team do or what Yama does is how can we get creative and get really uh, – how can we think through all the different ways to – to provide relief for those families, because even though in Mioma, our customer really is the supporter, the supporter exists by definition to support. So to 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 have an access. Sorry, I could you offer it, but so so I know sure. like onlysimchas.com, you know, yeah, that, only the, sort of offshoots of that. We remember when that became big. I I know about take them a meal and yeah. you know, especially when a baby's born, stuff like that. And, and and they do it for Shiva meals too. 
but but if I am, if my good friend just passed, you know, or, or their their parent passed, right, uh, and and I want to just jump in and be the helper, but but it's but it's a lot. It's a lot. I can't yeah. do everything. What what is what is your platform going to help me do, or help or help or help my friend do? It's really meant for you to help facilitate. So uh, the, the the core product is what we call a support a registry, and the idea of the registry is that you know, what happens currently is that as word is spreading in the community uh, that either someone's in hospice or someone has passed, uh, the the family. Uh, the primary grievers are usually the recipients of all this inbound communication. And it's a scattershot of channels. Some of it's on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, or maybe it's on um, cards or letters that you hear that you get in the mail or stories you hear in person in a memorial service or texts or emails. And it's very overwhelming for the family because as we've said, they're going through this incredibly traumatic thing mentally and psychologically. So they're just trying to, like, they're numb, they're processing. They can, part of how you support a griever is to minimize decisions. So people that are asking them, you know, let me know what I can do to help you. How can I help you? Like that's that's really not the best thing to ask them in that moment because they can't really answer that question in, in, the, in the moment for, for the most part. So what Mialma does and what in this example you would hopefully do is frankly just build a support a registry, which is meant to kind of be that like that binding agent to provide clear direction um, on behalf of the family outwardly of, you know, are they looking to raise money? Are they looking for help with meals? Is they're is looking for help on shipping meals? Are they, you know, where are they looking to, to, to point those that want to make a donation in honor of? Because we can, we can make it very easy and, and put links on the page. Um, are you looking to collect pictures and stories? Because a big component of this is the door of a door. I mean, part of the background is I never met either of my mom's parents died before I was born and growing up in Atlanta with where my dad's side was from. I was plus to have 31 years with my dad's dad. My dad's mom is still alive. And it was always weird to me growing up that there was, I knew so much more about one set of grandparents than the other. There's a Wikipedia page for Yale and Sarita Jareen, of Richmond, Virginia. But why not? The stories are out there. The pictures are out there. They're just not consolidated. So trying to leverage modern technology in ways that really bring the community together so that the, the grievers can kind of, almost like have a little bit of space to like point everyone in this direction versus having to answer all the same questions redundantly. So that's, that's kind of the core thing right now. It's, it's, it's activating a support, a registry, and then sharing that link with the community. So ideally this link to the Mioma page, the registry is, you know, in the obituary, in the Facebook post, in the email that goes out from the house of worship to the congregation. And to what everyone was saying a few minutes ago, we are also partnering with houses of worship, with with funeral homes, Jewish and non-Jewish, because part of part of our goal is to is to bring the audience to the Mialma page, but part of it also is to like deconstruct part of the page and put that registry, for example, on the funeral home website. So we're meeting people where they already are. So it's just more about how can we how can we get very creative in in doing things, leveraging modern tools that allow supporters to do what they want to do, to feel like they've done something meaningful and frankly, to avoid guilt or shame. Because what happens now is you may hear that you know, a friend of yours lost someone close to them. And immediately these questions come to mind of what can I do? Where do I go? What do they need? And if you can't find good answers to that, sometimes you may end up doing nothing and feeling terrible about it. But so it's trying to kind of close that gap between the care needed to provide relief and the support and, and, and the support, that the family needs. And again, it's also just not just in those first few days and weeks, it's on that longer term. So talk to a lot of families that have gone through loss that said, you know, the worst part wasn't, you know, the few days before or the few days afterwards, 
it was two or three months later. It was six or eight months later when they felt this isolation. They felt this loneliness of, does anyone still care about it? Does anyone still remember mom or dad or grandma? So we're trying to kind of change that conversation by keeping that community of support somewhat intact over time. Rabbi, I have a question for you. So we've had a couple of lighthearted moments on this uh, pod and you're a social worker and a rabbi. Um, so is it okay to laugh at some of these things, right? Like the, like we, we just, you know, Rich brought up uh, a Shiva consultant, right? I mean, I know I've had some pretty hysterical conversations with my parents when they were like buying their plots and they were, and my father said like, well, I don't want to view the LIE from, from my plot. Like, like I don't want to have to do like, I've been dealing with traffic my whole life. Like I don't want to rest in eternity, but like looking at the LIE, he wanted, he wanted away from the, from the highway. I guess it's Mount Hebron would be the, the cemetery that's out East on Long Island. Right. Is it okay to laugh at some of these things, even if it's like really kind of morose and, and, and ultimately this, you know, sad. Why not? I mean, if it helps you to get the work done, uh, I, I say go for it. If that's your way in, if that's your family's way of dealing with difficult topics, is to start off in a lighthearted way, in a joke. But at the end of the day, your dad signed a deed, right? And he has that in his papers and you know where it is and there are electronic copies and his uh, a state lawyer has, a, like, oh, you know, if the work got done and you needed to joke with him about what view he was going to have, so be it. You know, there are probably other rabbis out there who would say, well, you know, we're talking about life and we have to revere life and we to treat life with, with sacredness. Yes, yes, yes. And our thing is, if it's going to make you avoid it because it's a hard topic and you think you can't laugh about it, then that's no help to us, Right. Yeah, I, I hope I, that helped in some way. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I, I want to echo what she said. I think she's completely right. I think, you know, we talk a lot about like changing this conversation where it doesn't have to all be sad and somber. I mean, yes, obviously parts of it are incredibly sad and certain circumstances are far more tragic and traumatic than others, um, even though they're all it's, all, it's all, it's all very sad in some ways. But, you know, we try to find beauty in the support, uh, death and, and, and grief and dying. It's It's part of life. So, yeah, not certain. It's 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 not something to 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 maybe to celebrate, but to kind of you shouldn't shy away from it because supporting a friend that is going through this um, is I think is beautiful and it is there's it's I think there's a, there's very like wonderful Jewish concepts of um, of helping a friend and if comedy or laughing or whether it's something serious something that is lighthearted. Um, whether it's with someone that is going through this, that is a, you know, like the person themselves before they pass, if they're in that headspace, I think it can be, it can be beautiful. Yeah. There was an article in the New York Times recently about a trend um, in stand-up comedy of people doing shows about death. And I think there's something to be said for that, where we are as a society and uh, how we can bring back important topics that we're, um, we're messing things up. We're not, we're not figuring out how to do it. Um, so if that works for some families, I say, go for it. And one more thing to add, we've, in a lot of the, um, the experts that we've talked to, a lot of the therapists and counselors, what we've heard time and time again is that, um, uh, one of the best ways to support someone that, that has gone through loss is, is to talk to them about the person they lost, because there's, there's an awkwardness where a lot of people feel where you may have a friend that, you know, that, that, that lost a parent six months ago and like you're around them and now you feel it's almost like you, your friendship is different because you don't know what to say. And it's like, they're thinking about it. They didn't forget, but they're aware. Say their name, tell them a story about the person, like acknowledge, ask how they're doing. So not to kind of shy away from those moments, but to actually kind of lean in a little bit more. 
because it can be healing for them and it can remove a little bit of awkwardness and frankly make a better connection between you and them, you know, in this, in this context. So yeah, if laughter is kind of their, their support language, then yeah, all for it. All right. We're at the time, the favorite part of every podcast for the Jewish Insider podcast, which is the lightning round. And in the lightning round, we're going to ask you a series of questions to get a little bit of a sense of who you are as a person. Um, so, Rich, if you if you might permit me, I, I would like to go first. Uh, we'll start with you, Rabbi. You both get to answer the question. Um, favorite either Yiddish, Hebrew, Arabic, or for you, Aragheti, Ladino uh, phrase or word. And for this, profanity is allowed. Gatkas. My grandfather. <laughs> That's what we have not heard before, but that's great. My mother used to say that all the time. Harry, he wore gotkas 365 days a year. It's long underwear. Must have been really cold where you lived. (laughs) On Long Island. I don't know how cold it was. (laughs) Can I say me Alma? (laughs) Um, Oh, oh, come on. um, I like Oive. That's always always the – Oive was always kind of – it always worked for me. So we'll go with that. All right, Rich, you go. Well, I was going to ask for favorite cemeteries, but that might be for taste. I don't know. <laughs> oh, I think that's right. Yeah. Is, there a, is there a favorite Jewish cemetery in the world? Uh, <laughs> you know, actually, I will say that when you go to Europe and you go to some of these places where like these like really old cemeteries and you, you just, it's unbelievable. Like the, the, the amount of history that exists yeah. in Jewish cemeteries that have been kept up by the communities over, over centuries is unbelievable. Uh, and it's a testament to, to, our, to our faith and our culture. But um, I would just go back to our, our typical playbook, and that is asking you, as we think about Shiva meals, what is a, a favorite Jewish food? Ooh, that's uh, that, a good that one, Rich. Way to pivot to the guests. Rich, way to pivot to the guests. Favorite Shiva meals. Favorite Shiva meals. I mean, we're not usually going just for the food. Maybe it's part of it. Um, <laughs> uh, you can't go wrong with the corned beef sandwich. I'll go with that. Kogel. Jared, you get the last. And actually, I'll, I'll, oh. I'll also answer for a second. Your, your, you know, somewhat in jest. Your question about favorite cemeteries. I remember a story. Um, I went to um, uh, an Alexandria Most High School Minister program you know, twenty years ago. I was in high school, and uh, I remember going to visit a cemetery in Tiberias. And I came back home a few months later. I was remember talking with my my great grandmother, um, who was born in the Isle of Rhodes and came to America when she was in her twenties. And I was telling her the story about this cemetery in Tiberias. Um, and very casually, she says, oh, yeah, my grandpa's buried there. I was like, what? And she was like, yeah, she should tell me about where it was. And she had been there before. So about, about eight years later, I went back with my sister and my parents to Israel. We went back to that cemetery. And we actually found the grave of my great, great, great grandfather who came from Rhodes where everyone else went to America. This was like, actually, he went a little bit earlier. So it was around 19, I think, 1900 to 1910. He came to Tiberias and was buried there. So. I'll have to put that as my favorite. And, and a plug for a past episode for those who haven't listened, uh, our interview with Operation Benjamin's uh, uh, CEO, who uh, does incredible work uh, identifying unmarked uh, Jewish graves in uh, American battlefield cemeteries. Yes, and then replace them. Yeah, it's, yes. Last last one because Rich, you're you're in front of a bookshelf. Scott, you're in front of a bookshelf. Rabbi, you're in front of a bookshelf. Favorite book you've read recently? It could be on topic or off topic, but we have a, you know a bunch of smart people here. Um, 
present myself excluded, but uh, best thing you've read recently that you'd like to share with our our, our listeners? Sure, I just picked up um, and reread uh, Dr. Ira Biox's "The Four Things That Matter Most." Um, I will go with uh, Atomic Habits, um, uh, a book my wife actually turned me on to recently on a trip uh, about ways to just to kind of improve uh, improve your your daily habits and. Uh, small changes towards big goals, and also before we drop on this, I want to I want to commend and thank Jared and Rich for for taking the time to 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 talk about this and to 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 highlight the importance of this kind of a topic because as you know, Rabbi, I'd imagine agrees with me on this. It's important. It's universal. Sometimes it can be kind of shunned by, but um, at the end of the day, this is this is this is mental health. So this is it's important. Thank you. Well, thank you, Rabbi. Thank you, Scott. You know, you guys are both uh, walking kiddush Hashem's here. For, for, for doing this work and uh, we, you know we should never need it but it's amazing to know that you were there uh, for, for all of us doing this work so thank you very much for having being on the podcast with us and we look forward to seeing you again soon thank you thanks if you like the show help us get the word out to other people subscribe on your favorite podcast app leave us a review on Apple Podcast or Spotify and most importantly tell your friends because that's the best recommendation we can get Until next time, this is Jewish Insiders Podcast. Thanks for listening.